Spectre. In the world of James Bond, Spectre is the acronym for a mouthful of vengefulness, the special executive for counterintelligence, terrorism, revenge, and extortion. But since it doesn't quite add up, what in fact occupies the foreground is the ghostly word Spectre. In Ian Fleming's Thunderball, for example, those secretly involved in the organization that bears as name an acronym that retains the first word's first two letters to spell Spectre seem unprepared to encounter their identifying name as a word in the mix of everyday meaning and metaphor. Bond tests Largo with what he considers an association of words. When I came to the table, I saw a specter, he said the word casually, with no hint at double meaning. Largo has to slap his face back on and ask Bond what he means. Bond said lightly, the specter of defeat. I thought your luck was on the turn. Largo counters with bravado. My friend wishes to put the evil eye upon my cards. We have a way to deal with that where I come from. He lifted a hand, and with only the first and little fingers outstretched in a fork, he prodded once, like a snake striking toward Bond's face. Bond laughed good-naturedly. That certainly put the hex on me, but what did it do to the cards? Come on, your specter against my specter. After he wins three hands down, Bond once more won't give it a rest. He orders champagne and caviar for three. My specter also deserves his reward. Wondering again whether the shadow that flickered in Largo's eyes at the word had more significance than Italian superstition, he got up and followed the girl between the crowded tables to the supper room. While Bond is able to utter spectre in the mix of metaphor, on the other side of the game, his antagonist is in demetaphorized thrall to its underworld significance or organization. While Largo interprets Bond's spectre as infernal demon, Bond reserves the right to choose between infernal specters and the friendly ghosts of unfinished business to whom consideration is owed. Thunderball was rehearsed as Fleming's first attempt at screenplay composition, which turned into a cumulative and collaborative effort. When a certain Kevin McClory discovered that Fleming had walked away from the teamwork to write his novel, Thunderball, he charged Fleming with plagiarism, which psychoanalytically and always amounts to a form of or forum for improper or incomplete mourning. The main issue was the first appearance of Spectre in Fleming's writing. This third-party organization, which holds together the screen versions of Dr. No and From Russia with Love, but is without mention in those novels, is in every sense a haunting projection that at the end of his career, Fleming sought to reclaim, own up to, or release. Because the legal complications that had Thunderball surrounded deferred implementation of that made-for-the-screen work, Dr. No was the first Bond novel to hit the screen. In Dr. No, as in From Russia with Love, the second Bond movie or projection, Spectre was in full force. In the novel From Russia with Love, in which the opposing force of evil is the Soviet organization Smirsch, 
Bond's assignment is to get hold of a Russian cipher machine clearly modeled after the Nazi German Enigma. The novel calls the machine Spector. The screen version says Lector. When Bond's boss, M, extols the plan as the most important coup that's come our way since the war, he lets slip what remains most alive even as dead in the Cold War setting of Fleming's narratives. A close look at the novels shows that the recent past of the Cold War presses all over the place in the details. In addition to a number of recycled Nazis, the enemy organizations that Bond must battle include leaders whose menace is hard to identify and whose German surnames could double as so-called German-Jewish names. Blofeld and Goldfinger, who in the book goes by just gold when he is alone with his gangster cohorts going for the Fort Knox gold, are just two or three examples. Consider the dossier on the leader of the communist underworld in Fleming's first novel, Casino Royale. His name, Le Chiffre, he himself adopted to go with the passport number he in a sense became when, while registering as displaced person at the end of World War II, his amnesia didn't lift. This man, whose only recorded origin in June 1945 is as inmate of Dachau DP camp in the U.S. zone of Germany, is given a close description in search of broader origins. Ears small with large lobes indicating some Jewish blood. Racially, subject is probably a mixture of Mediterranean with Prussian or Polish strains. As freelance third-party operation that manipulates the conflict between East and West to obtain benefits of its own, Spectre raises a crowd of ghosts while also setting the father's place. Ian Fleming's father, Valentine Fleming, was killed in May 1917, fighting the Germans. Toward the end of his career as the author of James Bond narratives, and thus in the close quarters, he gave himself with Spectre for making reclamations and reparations. Fleming compiled and published a tour guide in 13 chapters for the adventurous, titled Thrilling Cities. Toward the close of the Berlin entry, Fleming jumps the gun in a slip or typo that identifies with the enemy. From this grim capital went forth the orders that in 1916 killed my father and in 1940 my youngest brother. Ian Fleming thus makes a date for his father within a range of German planning and issuing of orders which doubles as the span of the death wish that only the first date is tampered with shows that both father and brother are in it together, with the relationship to the father appropriately bearing the brunt of murderously mixed feelings. Once we arrive in Vienna, Fleming as tour guide turns up the contrast of this city he dislikes to recall with the Tyrol, where he lived with substitute parental guidance following his father's death. I learned German in the Tyrol from Mr. Ernan Forbes Dennis, who was a student of the great psychologist Alfred Adler, and I learned far more about life from Ernan than from all my schooling put together. The Tyrolese even ended up remaining his favorite people in the world. Through Adler, Fleming gained entry to greater psychoanalysis, the whole diverging spread 
of all that took its departure from Freud's science. I remember in the days before the war reading the works of those bizarre psychologists, Weininger and Grodek, let alone the writings of Adler and Freud. According to Thrilling Cities, Vienna in 1959 displays an utter lack of the intellectual and cultural activity that had defined the city, like Berlin and Munich too, before the war or Hitler's rule. Fleming attributes all these shortfalls to the absence of the Jews who create an atmosphere in which the intellect appears to flourish astonishingly. At Blofeld's introduction as the mastermind behind Spectre and Thunderball, we learn that his charisma is of the same unbounded kind that alone explains how Hitler could have enthralled the most talented nation in Europe. From the German perspective of his identification, Fleming looks across a centuries-long generation of intelligent life, both Jewish and Gentile, both emigre and silent majority, that was utterly lost without the backup of proper succession or substitution for a long time to come. This circumscribed Germany-centric framing of the view to a killing belongs among the conditions for the existence of Spectre. If the recent past is interject inside Spectre, appears in some instances as amalgamation of persecutors with their victims, then we must conclude that in the traumatic era from which Fleming initially derives the bond, there is no room for sentiment. The denizens of Spectre are shaken, not stirred. Fleming's decision, comparatively late in life, to marry, because he was expecting fatherhood, coincides with the onset of his authorship of Bond. It was 1952, and he was already in some phase of retirement from his former life in and around the UK, spending the winter months in his home in Jamaica, where he would compose each of his Bond narratives. It was to bind his anxieties about the family complex he was entering or returning to that Fleming started typing the first sentences of the first Bond novel from which all the rest would follow. The scent and smoke and sweat of a casino are nauseating at three in the morning. Then the soul erosion produced by high gambling, a compost of greed and fear and nervous tension, becomes unbearable and the senses awake and revolt from it. James Bond suddenly knew that he was tired. He always knew when his body or his mind had had enough, and he always acted on the knowledge. This helped him to avoid staleness and the sensual bluntness that breeds mistakes. At this opener, we already have two or more settings juxtaposed. There is the den of iniquity which shakes up as brink of exhaustion, equal parts Christian soul care and secular concern for nerves or psyche. But then we switch to a body or mind maintenance program that prompted the first critical readers of Fleming's novels, Fausto Antonini, for example, to identify Bond as the new cybernetic hero whose relationship to his interiority as clean and mean machine is conveyed by the double O icon, which in certain countries signifies the public restroom. Keep it flushed. This is the aspect of the bond that will give way in its purity 
before the emergence of specter out of the initial juxtaposition of settings of spiritual and psychic exhaustion. Married with child, Fleming became the author of spy thrillers that drew on his wartime work for British intelligence, but were engaged in the Cold War, the native habitat of their genre. His literary day job was with the Sunday Times. Fleming proposed as a series to appear in the Times, Reflections on the Seven Deadly Sins by Seven Distinguished Authors. In the foreword to their subsequent collection as Book of Essays, Fleming slides into the James Bond mode of worldliness and gives us the stiff upper flip-off that the original Seven Sins are by now outmoded, replaced by new and improved ones, with one exception, which also belongs to the world of the Bond. Of all the seven, only sloth in its extreme form of akidia, which is a form of spiritual suicide and a refusal of joy, has my wholehearted condemnation, perhaps because, in moments of despair, I have seen its face. In You Only Live Twice, the novel in which Spectre is busted or put to rest, Blofeld looks back on his thwarted attempts to be kind through threatened cruelty. In Thunderball, he sought to extort great sums of money in exchange for the atomic missiles he had stolen and was prepared to detonate in selective locations. But he was thus also providing work of caution that would have prepared the world to adopt the necessary defensive and preventive measures in the face of inevitable rogue appropriation and deployment of weapons of mass destruction. His next scheme in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, the open declaration of bacteriological war against Britain if funds weren't forthcoming, might have forced the people he was threatening out of lethargy into the kind of community effort we witnessed during the war. This third time around, Blofeld has set up a castle of death in Japan, its gardens stocked with poisonous plants and lethal reptiles and insects, allegedly for research purposes. But the fortifications and the shark-infested moat, like the large signs prohibiting trespass, instead advertise to countless persons seeking death the true garden of ending it. This time Blofeld is neither committing nor threatening any overt crime. His inadvertent service at first sight is to offer a more efficient means of disposal for the suicidally inclined. But once paid off to move away, which is the goal of his implicit blackmailing of the Japanese government, Japan will have been taught a lessening of the cultural valorization of suicide as honorable way out. In this final incarnation of Spectre, for which Blofeld no longer needs its name or allegorical caption, the mastermind has taken up residence in the close quarters of the deferral of his own suicidality. I will make a confession to you, Mr. Bond. I have come to suffer from a certain lassitude of mind that I am determined to combat. This comes in part from being a unique genius who is alone in the world, without honor, worse misunderstood. No doubt much of the root cause of this achidia is physical, liver, kidneys, heart, the usual weak points of the middle-aged. But there has developed in me a certain mental lameness, a disinterest in humanity and its future, 
and utter boredom with the affairs of mankind. In Fleming's Thunderball, Bond was the last to believe in the existence of Spectre as a third party to world conflict, rather than, for example, just another front for Cold War hostilities. In the next novel on Her Majesty's Secret Service, Bond is already one year into the assignment he was given to confirm that Spectre was in fact dismantled. Because he has all along been convinced that there was nothing left for him to keep after, find, or lose, he has determined at the start of the novel, since he appears to have been in effect relieved of his double-O duties, to submit his resignation from the service. When Fleming launched the Bond series in 1953, he set the superhero at an age and in a condition of health that would qualify him for retirement in another ten years or so. Fleming was thus on this schedule, too, when it comes to Bond's relationship to Spectre. That Bond is always only playing Red Indians is the disparagement of his agency with which his antagonists regularly taunt him on the wavelength, as we know from his bouts of self-recrimination, of Bond's own superego. Dr. Shatterhand, the pseudonym Blofeld will assume in You Only Live Twice, is the old citation or interject of playing Red Indians in the German-language world. Karl May, introduced alongside Vinatu, the Indian chief object of identification, his good white friend and ally, Old Shatterhand. Thus the Germanic niche or crypt of Fleming's parental bond of couplification and mourning, the shattering of the and, continues to summon his special spectral agency for final reckonings. What Spectre asks for tends not to exceed what any ghost, at least according to countless stories and manuals, might be expected to request in the fixated effort to bring something in extended lifetime to closure. This becomes ever clearer the more deeply we enter the era of Bond's projection. In the film On Her Majesty's Secret Service, Blofeld threatens to inflict instant infertility on countless life forms, a threat that he at least never expects to carry out. In exchange for withdrawal of a fantastically apocalyptic threat, Blofeld wants amnesty, in other words, a new release of life out of hiding or incarceration, and recognition of his claim to a noble title. In psychodynamic terms, he wishes to look for love among his good internal objects, whose fundamental contribution to his makeup, however, it is up to the world powers to recognize. Total world domination thus has an internal spin as one of Spectre's transitional objectives. In what amounts to their last prep session on the way to the location of Bond's final reckoning with Spectre in You Only Live Twice, several breakthroughs take place. The day begins with a visit to Japan's oldest brothel, which, now that prostitution is illegal, remains open as historical monument. Bond asks how many bedrooms there were. Only four. That's no way to run a whorehouse. You need quick throughput, like a casino. Bond, Tanaka says, has missed the point. In former times, this was a place of rest and recreation. Food was served and there was music and storytelling. People would write tankas. 
take that inscription on the wall. It says, everything is new tomorrow. Some man with a profound mind will have written that. Some man, whose own name subsumes the tanka genre, crosses to the limits of the novel, subsuming him. Some man will have written the tanka that is the quintessential Fleming sentence, which the post-Fleming titles of Bond films, like Tomorrow Never Dies, struggle to duplicate or parody. Sure, Bond replies, but then someone would interrupt the proceedings, reach for his sword, and demand one of the four occupied bedrooms. Bond's resistance, which takes the form of prosecuting certain claims to sublimation for the repression driving the stakes, nevertheless crosses over into the kind of intervention that presupposes identification. Everyone tries to forget his rowdy past instead of being proud of it. Then he concludes by overstepping his intervention and setting himself up for the backfire of breakthrough. You shouldn't try and pretend that your oldest whorehouse is a sort of Stratford-on-Avon. We are at the point of crossing over. The next round of literary chit-chat, which shows up Bond's ignorance of a certain 17th-century haiku poet, prompts Tanaka to summon as many big names of Western literature as would fit into a hand of cards to bear witness to the enormity of this loss. Given out of chronological order, the shelf life of Western civilization is propped up by two bookends, Shakespeare and Goethe. Bond tries to be accommodating, but he cannot accept Tanaka's claim, based on several samples, that the unknown poet is Shakespeare's equal. Tanaka suggests that if Bond is to enter into an understanding of the haiku, he must try to compose one of his own. The result is Bond's authorship of the title of Fleming's narrative. You only live twice, once when you're born, once when you look death in the face. Tanaka is delighted with what he considers a breakthrough with sincere effort that reflects on his mission. It is not until they check into the local police station built in the yellow brick German style of the Axis era to look over surveillance shots of Dr. Shatterhand's castle that the breakthrough occurs, one that exceeds the kamikaze therapy that aims at looking one's own death in the face. Bond's dead are now in his face. In the photographs, he recognizes who's in this Dracula castle for keeps, Blofeld and Irma Bunt, the couple that is Spectre, now the ghost of his own couple's past, both his missing marriage and the couple of parents. He won't tell Tanaka who Dr. Shatterhand is. That would take the case out of his hands. The photographic evidence transmits to him the summons for revenge. Remember me. Prior to arrival at the police station, at the point of crossing over in their literary work of identification, Bond and Tanaka breakfasted on ham omelets called Hamlets. And as he prepares under double cover in the fishing village to launch his covert operations against the Castle of Death, Bond learns that the locals refer to Dr. Shatterhand as a foreign body, both the devil himself and the incarnation of all the evil in the West. But local customs and shrines tend to make room for ghosts, many of them friendly. 
After a night of dreaming of ghosts and demons, Bond encounters Blofeld on this questionable ground. And so, Mr. Bond, I came to devise this useful and essentially humane project, the offer of free death to those who seek release from the burden of being alive. By doing so, I have provided the common man with a solution to the problem of whether to be or not to be. Spectre appears at the juncture of questioning at which Hamlet encounters his Spectre. Is the ghost of his father, the dead father, doing the limbo because he has unfinished business to entrust to his son, or is he a demon sent from hell? The infernal relation is never seriously pursued. But there is yet another question that is never raised as such, but which Hamlet acts out as his famous procrastination. What is the identity of, or the identification with, the ghost? Or put differently, has there been a murder, or is not the ghost of the father the strong sign that mourning at this juncture is disturbed, interrupted, abbreviated, and thus too successful by half, the vengeful, violent half? Isn't murder in Shakespeare's play with successful mourning and ready substitution inflict upon the dead. There is the death of the other, but then there's a second death, which is murder. The secular mind was catching up with the goods of this world, which, since hardly good enough in comparison with what awaits us in the other world, were consigned in the Christian era to the trash heap of waiting around, or otherwise stored under projective layers of evil and demonization. Marlowe's Dr. Faustus steps up to the plate, sweet Mephistopheles, and during the 24-year or hour span of deathless consuming time, he gets to know the world of his own making. The medium for his striving is magic, a good catch-all for everything Christianity excluded and prosecuted. As secular subject, Faustus accepts the devil's best offer, a finite span of quality time, and then the deadline. He translates hell with Elysium, or with this world, and Christian devils with pagan demons or spirits of the dead. But once he binds himself to the most powerful devil magic can provide, Faustus must endure the sermonizing shine Mephistopheles takes to Christianity. The problem Faustus faces at the end is that he cannot be certain that there is a time limit to his death or afterlife. He knows that human striving, knowing, and consuming cannot be reduced to lifetime. And his magic orders ghosts around, fulfilling his wishes, their commands, at the speed of thought. But Faustus does not want to slave as ghost for the next in line with an owner's manual. Focusing always only on his own death and life, Faustus must look forward to his own ghostliness as so abhorrent that it might as well be hell. Uninhibited by Christianity, Faustus gets his groove back, but he gets his grave back too. With Shakespeare's Hamlet, we get to know the ghosts as the detour to self-knowledge, missing from Faustus's more direct and less protected hit of what's worth knowing. In Hamlet, the second death, or life, is thus subsumed by mourning, which in turn can be seen to replace the magic so central to the tragical history of Dr. Faustus as the main medium for reopening the stage of the world, 
following the withdrawal of Christianity's dominion. The ghost in Hamlet, as father, commands that the son re-record or erase the record of his inner outer archive and sensorium, the volumes of his brain, in order to admit the new medium of mourning. Remember me. No one heeds the ghostly mole, but the moles and blemishes in the maternal face-to-face which Hamlet tries to mirror or trap as his sole activity in the service of justice, which doubles back as morning service only, are bumps in the night or nothingness where all the players are most alive and where they all fall down dead at the end of the Hamlet line. That is not to say that these moles are opposed. The maternal shade or echo poses the demand as a question a young child might anxiously ask. Thus the paternal command also transmits a child's quavering, wondering out loud if he too will be admitted into this new echo chamber of remembrance and spectrality. Remember me? In the year of his mother's passing, Fleming died of his second heart attack, only twice, on the twelfth birthday of his son, Casper, who in earlier years was known to ask his father if he loved James Bond more than him. Bond was Fleming's legacy, but not to his son. Originally invented for his young son as bedtime story and then written down while convalescing from his first heart attack, Fleming's children's story, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, and places the gadget love of the Bond world up on the screen within a family's relationship to its magical car. Once rescued from the scrap heap and repaired by the inventor father, the car named Chitty Chitty Bang Bang can fly, float, and save its loved ones. The car is technically the father's prosthesis, but its magical qualities, its uncontrollability and independence, represent as separable the object relation to mother and all others. This story is happy medium for the father's relationship to his beloved but neglected son, separates out its transmission from its inheritance. Fleming contains in the story's separate dedication as tribute to the original car in which the story's magical car was based, historical insides, German and provenance, which are not those of Casper's Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. The original car, built near Canterbury in 1920, had a pre-1914 war Mercedes chassis in which was installed a six-cylinder aero engine, the military type used by the Germans in their Zeppelins. When Fleming and nine-year-old Casper attended the Disney film The Absent-Minded Professor, he left the theater convinced that Chitty Chitty Bang Bang had been plagiarized. Thus, the magical car shares with Spectre the improperly buried providence. Andrew Lysett gives Casper's mental status after his father's death as suspended between courtship of attractive and intelligent women and his decision to become an interior decorator. Stimulated by a visit to Egypt the year after his father's death, he also assembled a respectable collection of pharaonic antiquities. At school, his main interests were books and Egyptology. He left university behind to make a career in the antiques business. Although he was seen with a succession of intelligent girlfriends, his inner life was tormented and he became increasingly reclusive. 
1973, he first lays his hands on the trust money and inherits Goldeneye, the father's estate in Jamaica. In 1974, he goes back to Goldeneye for the first time since his father's death. Lysett suggests that he was shocked by the evidence of his father's other life, which his mother sought to keep under wraps. This was one of those times he did not succeed at a suicide attempt. When Hamlet becomes the ghost, I am dead, Horatio, Horatio, I am dead. He transmits the tale that lies open before us and around us. Because Hamlet relates to, through, as the ghost, he stands for work on a new frontier, trial exploration of all that can be undertaken within the relationship to ghosts, the other next generation. But then there was Casper, the friendly ghost, who made it inside the very transmission of the inner world without first filling the father's shoes on the outside. He inscribes himself within a mourning process revalorized, for example, as magical car transmission rather than inheritance of the bond. Casper and Hamlet fall through the role of heir to or through mourning while their identification with the specter is as strong in life as in death. Casper and Hamlet conjure their ghostliness between the wide-open reception of media spooks unchecked by mourning and the other option, playing posthumous, which reasserts the object relation, but in reverse. Without avenging his father or securing the inheritance of his patrimony, without accepting the identification of the specter as father's single occupancy or bequest, Hamlet transmits the inner world, the identification with ghostliness that transmits him. I am dead, Horatio. Horatio, I am dead. In 1975, Casper left behind a suicide note, which is not your usual testament. If it is not this time, it will be the next. While Casper's parting shot reverses and preserves the typical Bond affirmation of the now is forever, tomorrow is already dead, the note also shares a curiously upbeat rhythm with the stop-and-go ignition name of Casper's magical car. The bond was first introduced between father and son when the latter was conceived as accidentally or unconsciously on purpose, if not next time, then this time. The surprise expectancy of fatherhood led Fleming to enter couplification and commence exploration as writer of the bond, initially to assuage anxieties. The heterosexual couple, beginning with its embodiment of the future, was a piece of work of mourning for Fleming, which led to the invention or projection of Spectre, and, at least within the span of the three Spectre narratives, to his giving up the ghost. If it is not this time, it'll be the next. Mm -hmm. 